You are listening to the Canadian Immigration Podcast, Season 3, Episode 3. With Citizenship and Immigration Canada making it increasingly difficult to speak to an officer, there are few places to turn for information that can be relied upon. The Canadian Immigration Podcast was created to fill this void by offering the latest information on Canadian law, policy, and practice. Please welcome ex-immigration officer and Canadian immigration lawyer, Mark Holthy. As he answers a wide variety of immigration questions and shares practical tips and guidance to help you along your way. Well, hello there and welcome back once again to the Canadian Immigration Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Holthy, coming to you as always from the beautiful province of Alberta, Canada. This episode of the podcast is a little bit different, and I think I try to add a little bit of variety every once in a while. The last one was my little monologue on navigating Canadian ports of entry and pulling back the curtain a little bit on um, what it's like to be an officer and and just trying to give you the yourself or your clients the best chance of getting success when you're navigating through that decision-making body for the purposes of immigration. And uh, so those of you who haven't had a chance to listen to that, definitely go back and, and listen to episode two. This week, I decided to do something a little bit different and bring on a non-lawyer. So in this case, it is translation companies. And um, we as immigration lawyers probably use translators more than anyone else and interpreters, of course, as we're trying to communicate with clients all over the world in different languages. So I thought, you know what, I'm going to bring on the owner of a translation company, a well-respected one, I might add, at least here in Alberta, and have her share a little bit of thought on the perspective of, of a translating company and also give us tips and strategies in one, choosing translators and two, us working better with them to get our documents turned around quicker. So uh, Monica Di Maria or Di Maria, Italian based name, she came to join me. And so we'll get to that in a little bit. But I wanted to share with you guys, I was away last week and um, I attended the Social Media Marketing World Conference for 2018 down in San Diego, California. And it was unbelievable. I've never really been to many conferences that were non-legal. Not that we're boring, but you know what? When I compare what I experienced down there with um, what we generally churn out with our legal conferences, wow, there's like no comparison. I had so much fun. It was amazing. And uh, some of you are thinking, Mark, why in the world are you taking one whole week essentially off of your practice to go down to a social media marketing conference? Why in the world do you do that? You are a lawyer. You hire other people to do that for you. Aside from maybe doing a little blogging or this podcast, why in the world would you need to go down there? Well, I can tell you guys, I see that world as the future. And remember, I'm here in little old Lethbridge. I'm not in a big center that's just just teeming with, with immigrants and, and communities that are looking to hire you and, and where there's a huge corporate base to, be, you know, to work on your business immigration um, or, or large ethnic populations and lots of spousal sponsorships and refusals and things like that, IED work and appeals, uh, federal court. There's none of that here. So I have to reinvent myself. It seems like every, every year I, I think of a new way to try and get my, my name out, to, to get my profile out. And, um, you know, obviously this podcast is wonderful. Now it's kind of taken a little bit of a backseat to some of the other things that I'm doing. But um, it's interesting right now that the podcast, I'm trying to be a little bit more diligent getting them out. And I, I did one, uh, I guess it would have been a week and a half ago. That was on February the 24th. And, uh, and then before that, it was kind of on a monthly basis. So I'm going to try to do these a little bit more frequently, but the podcast is an important kind of outreach way that I can give back. And as you see on here, yes, I've got my name on the website. I'm looking at it right now. I have, uh, you know, uh, about Mark Holthy and how you can hire me and those kinds of things. But generally speaking, this podcast is designed to help, uh, collaborate with other lawyers across the country. And that's one of the the themes that I learned, and if any of you watch YouTube channels, you'll see these collaborations that one YouTuber does with another. 
And they do it for, for basically synergistic purposes. So that's one of the reasons why I love the podcast, because I invite, I invite you awesome people to come on as guests. You bring awesome content. And in the, at the end of the day, I plug the heck out of you, your firm. I post it on tweet, you know, Twitter and Facebook and, and uh, LinkedIn and all these other um, avenues. And, uh, and then basically everyone who's listening to me and is following me then gets introduced to you. And if they are in your area and need uh, a local immigration lawyer, then they think of you. And so I've always been so amazed at how just non non-collaborative, I guess, lawyers are. We're always worried about our turf. We're always worried about giving something away that someone's going to use and then, and then steal our clients away. We are the worst at collaborating, but I'll tell you guys, this podcast, the, the, you know, I've had so many positive reports from people who've come on, who have gotten work out of it from their offices. And, and guys, I don't care. Like, I don't care if one of my clients says, hey, um, I heard that awesome podcast uh, that you did with Mario Blissimo on medical inadmissibility, and I had this huge issue, and so I decided to call him. Fantastic. He's the guy that I'd refer you to, right? And then I've had uh, Rekha McNutt at Kernan Partners and Gene Munn talk about just reviews and... and um, and HNC applications, and you know uh, Jeffrey Lowe talk uh, talk about owner operator LMIAs, and so we've been able to talk collectively and share insight that benefits not only the listeners, but also promotes both of our practices. So it's not like I bring someone on my podcast just to get me more notarization, you know, uh, notoriety, so that people hire me. No, the reality is. Everybody that is involved benefits, and that's the whole concept of collaboration. So that's when I, it was interesting, I learned about this concept at the conference, but because I don't watch a lot of YouTube, my kids do, but you guys, you have got to do this more often. You've got to find ways of collaborating with other lawyers, and I guess maybe we do it somewhat indirectly, but working together collaboratively is amazing for the growth of your practice. And uh, everybody benefits that, that participates when the collaborators are in line. So that's why I do this, guys. And um, clearly, I want people to hire me. Clearly, I want clients because without them, my practice would shrivel and die away and I'd have to move into other areas of the law. And after I joined Stringham here, I've definitely considered um, moving out of immigration. I wasn't sure if there was a future or if, you know, what the future would hold. I've worked so hard to develop somewhat of a reputation as an immigration lawyer in Canada. And, uh, and so I've had a lot of mixed thoughts and, and it's amazing how diving into this world of social media marketing has opened my eyes to the possibilities and it is amazing. And the key message that I want to get across to all of you guys before I jump into our, um, our interview with uh, Monica uh, Di Maria is that the way you succeed in social media is not by hiring this team around you to produce content for you, but to get out there yourself, to build relationships with people that are following you, whether it's your blog or whether it's your podcast or your YouTube channel, whatever you're doing, producing video or audio or, or just in written form. If you get out there and you put yourself out there and you're able to build trust with your audience, people will hire people that they know, like, and trust. And the only way to do that, us lawyers, we have got a heavy, heavy burden to, 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 to bear because generally speaking, our reputations, we're always fighting that, you know, people think, oh, you're just the money grubbing lawyer and you know, you're just charging high fees because, you know, um, well, just because you're a lawyer and especially in the world of immigration. Well, I have learned and I think, I think I always knew it that being able to build a relationship with someone is the key important factor in them remaining as a long-term client. And I think we all know that indirectly, but to do that on a massive scale is a whole new world. And that's what social media offers. You have the ability to build relationships with the people that are listening with you. And, um, uh, listening to what you're, what you're writing or what you're saying or, or what you're producing in video form, and they're making a connection with you. And then the most amazing thing is when you really serve people, 
you really help them. You give them uh, direction. You give them information that makes their lives better. They become a fan. And it's hard to, to, to really understand that. But And some of those fans become raving fans. And uh, over the last little while, I've spent a lot of time building up a little private Facebook group called Express Entry Law. And um, it's private and it's closed. And those people who, you know, you have to request to be to be added in. But just this past uh, over the new year here, it's grown over 105,000. I think I'm actually up to about 106,000 people in this group. And I've learned so much from them. You know, and all I do is go on and just serve them, just help them answer questions. I do Facebook live videos, all these things. And excuse me, I truly believe that that's going to be the world because all of these people now know, like, and trust me. And they're my evangelists and they let everybody else know that, you know, that Mark knows what he's doing and the live Q and A's oh, they're awesome because you can't hide the fact that you don't know what you're doing on a live Q and A. If you don't know what you're doing, it's going to become very apparent when people are asking questions. And so I've had an unbelievable, uh, an unbelievable time doing that. It's been so much fun. And, uh, you know, our Facebook page for that, uh, for that Canadian immigration law, well, it's Canadian immigration Institute is what it's called. My Facebook page is, you know, that one's up to about 23,000. And, uh, I just recently started shifting over to YouTube and we're sitting at about, you know, 5,500, but it's so cool to have all these different platforms where you can actually have a massive reach in terms of your, your, your influence and be able to help people on such an amazingly grand scale way more, way more uh, massive and expansive than you could ever do on a one-to-one basis. And it just, it totally just reinvigorates me. And I think a lot of you, you know, with the way immigration has changed over the years, it's changed me. Practicing law has literally changed me. I've not been nearly as, as, as happy and, and, um, just positive. It, it, It really beats you down. And so to stumble upon this whole world where I can use my previous, you know, teaching experience to, to apply it to new, uh, just new ways and to see the influence amplified through all these processes is just amazing. And, uh, so I'm sorry, guys, this is, this is really carried on a lot longer than I intended to. And, you know, for, uh, for all intents and purposes, maybe I, maybe I should cut this, uh, out and, um, and have it as a separate discussion that I'm posting, <laughs> that I'm posting in, in podcast form, because it probably doesn't apply to many of you, but, I'm always out there trying to share what I'm thinking about, what, what's going in my mind and, and why I do the things I do. I'm, I, I'm very, very transparent in that way. But uh, yeah, this conference down in San Diego was awesome. I learned all about tons about Facebook and marketing and not only Facebook groups, but Messenger and uh, Messenger that's linked to a Facebook page and how you can use chatbots to help um, you know, to help filter and navigate so that you don't have to be the one answering all of those little chats uh, that are posted uh, within Messenger. And then better using Facebook Live and YouTube and, you know, making videos on your, your iPhone and all these different kinds of things, improving writing. Um, and then we had some phenomenal keynote uh, speakers with, with Pat Flynn, if any of you know Pat Flynn, Smart Passive Income, and, and Guy Kawasaki, who was the chief evangelist with Apple, and now he's shifted over to Canva, which is a phenomenal little... Uh, little um, site for creating <clears throat> images and graphics for, for social media. And, uh, but the highlight, I'll tell you, the highlight of that conference was uh, my hotel room was located about a 30 minute walk from the conference center. And I looked around and there were all these little bikes. And if you go to my Twitter feed at Mark Holthy, you'll see one of these little bikes and anywhere you could just pick one up, you know, register, uh, scan the barcode on the back, the, the, uh, that little um, query code or whatever it's called. And, um, and then it would unlock the bike and you ride it to where you want to go, stop it, lock it back up and on you go. And it was entirely free because they're trying to promote it in the city, I guess. And it was awesome. It saved me so much time and it was fun, you know, driving around, uh, riding around San Diego on these little bikes everywhere. So anyways, you'll have to check that out. All right, folks, I think I've officially talked longer than I ever intended to. And some of you, hopefully, you know, on your, um, in many cases with your podcast viewing, you can, you can speed up the audio. So I recommend that you skip through. (laughs) Well, I guess by this stage, you're, you're not skipping uh, because you've already had to listen to me. But in the future, if I'm ever rambling and you just are not interested in what I'm saying, just, you know, double time, listen or 
scroll uh, scroll ahead and then you don't have to listen to my my ramblings here. But anyways, this podcast is awesome. And uh, and Monica did an unbelievable job. I learned so much about the process. She really pulled the 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 curtains back on the whole world of translation and I know that you guys are going to love it. So, let's jump right now to that interview with Monica Di Maria. Well, I'm here with Monica De Maria, who is the owner and president of Giovanni Translation and Interpretation in Calgary. How are you, Monica? I'm good, Mark. Thank you for having me this morning. Now, one thing I, I didn't ask, De Maria, and I, I learned to speak Portuguese, so everything seems like an R's or D's. Where is De Maria from? It's an Italian, Italian. surname. My dad is Italian. So what is the proper Italian pronunciation? De Maria. De Maria. Okay, I was pretty close. <clears throat> I was pretty close. You well, rolled your R. <laughs> I did. I did. Excellent. Well, it's so great to have you. We've been uh, bouncing back and forth for uh, a couple months here, trying to find a time where I could get you on. And and uh, so we're delighted to have you join us here on the Canadian Immigration Podcast. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Excellent. Well, I thought I'd give a little bit of a background on, on your company. So Giovanni Translation and Interpretation was formed um, about 37 years ago in Calgary, Alberta. And you indicated that uh, your parents had originally started the, the business. Yes, that's correct. My dad came to Canada as an immigrant in 1975 and my mom came in 1980 and they immediately identified a need for translation services, even back in the 80s. And they created this company together in Calgary, and it grew over the last 37 years. It has grown, and we now provide services to law enforcement agencies, the federal, provincial, and municipal governments, oil companies, the courts, law firms, immigration lawyers are one of our biggest clients, insurance companies, medical professionals, community organizations. It's really amazing how many languages we offer. We offer over 50 languages. That is really, really cool. And before we set this up, I actually wasn't aware that you'd provided translation services to, to government. So it's, it's really cool to have someone on the podcast that has experience providing assistance to both sides of the equation, especially in the context of immigration. So, so Monica, how did you and, well, how did your family, I guess, and then ultimately you get into this translation um, uh, area? Well, my parents started when they came to Canada and they saw that there was really no business like this that offered translation and interpretation services. And it, they had a lot of dealings with international oil bids and contracts at the time. And that's where their focus was for a number of years. And then over the last 15 years, I have been involved really probably 16 years ago, my dad threw me in a booth at a conference and just had me start interpreting, uh, just shadowing him on the job and and I loved it. And slowly, slowly I decided after I finished my undergrad in Calgary that it would be a good idea for me to pursue another degree with a focus in translation. So I went and I did that. I went to the University of Ottawa and I got my BA honors in translation and then I came back to Calgary and I actually didn't work in translation because I didn't really like sitting behind the computer all day and just translating. <laughs> to be honest with you, I loved interacting with people. So I became a teacher for 10 years and then my parents were ready to retire and they asked me what I wanted to do with their business. And the option was either they close their doors or I take over and it just seemed like such a waste and such a shame to let them close the doors to this legacy that they created. So I ended up taking over uh, two and a half years ago my, with my husband actually. So we both took over the translation and interpretation business from my parents and I now run it. That's awesome. Um, you know, it's interesting. I was thinking, you know, as I was listening to you tell your story, um, I spent a couple years in Portugal and there were a couple occasions where I was with um, uh, some non-English speaking Portuguese and the speaker was English. 
And um, I was thrust into the role of trying to translate into Portuguese <laughs> what I was listening in, uh, you know, what I was hearing in English. And it was unbelievably brutal and difficult. One of the advantages is the person who was receiving my translation really had no reference point to, to know how badly I was doing it. <laughs> and so I have a whole new uh, appreciation for, uh, for you folks and the work that you do. And, um, and so let's jump into the very first question that I have for you. And I think many immigration lawyers um, have this question, and, and it relates to the difference between a certified translator and one that is not. And I'll give you a little bit of context here. And I think most immigration lawyers know that depending upon the type of application you're submitting, so for example, the Alberta Immigrant Nominee Program versus the uh, Immigration, Refugees, and Citizenship Canada, they sometimes have different standards. And in Alberta... Any translation that you submit has to have been done by a member of the Association of Translators and Interpreters of Alberta, or the, I'm assuming it's the national organization, the Canadian Translators, Terminologists and Interpreters Council, or if it's overseas, a recognized translator. So this concept of a certified translator, what, what's the real difference between one that is and one that is not? The real difference between a certified translator and one that is not certified is a certified translator has passed the examinations or undergone a portfolio review to become certified. So there are certain standards that need to be met when you become certified and that need to be proven through examinations or a portfolio review. And then you belong to a provincial organization, as you mentioned, it's the Association of Translators and Interpreters of Alberta, which ultimately falls under the federal umbrella, which is what we call CTIC, as you said, the Canadian Translators, Terminologists and Interpreters Council. So those are certified translators. Now, there are many other translators who are professionals and they don't go through the examination process, but they are equally competent competent and able to provide translation services. And the reason I say that they may not go through the entire process is because it's quite difficult and it's quite lengthy and it's also quite expensive as an individual to invest time and money to become certified. And for certain languages, there's just not enough demand. And so some people don't see the value in becoming certified, but they are equally competent because they may have been doing this for years and years and years, are very fluent in English and their native language as well, and therefore can provide a very similar quality of service than a certified translator can. And I should also say that it's sometimes impossible to find certified translators for some language combinations. I know that the certain programs in the immigration field require translations to be done exclusively by certified translators, but we once had a request for Latin. We had a, a Latin degree, I believe it was, from a country, and that document needed to be translated by a certified translator into English, and I checked every provincial organization in Canada, and there was not a single certified Latin to English translator at that time who could perform, who could provide this service. And so it's difficult for us as professionals to sometimes meet these demands that the government imposes because there simply may not exist a translator for that language combination. But basically, that's the difference between the two. Huh, that's interesting. And, you know, I remember a number of years back, and it was an educational credential. So it was a, it was a degree from uh, some institution that felt in their infinite wisdom to issue it in Latin. <laughs> and, so, <Yeah. laughs> and so I can imagine how, yeah, it's not like there's anyone who speaks Latin. It's entirely written, at least these days. And so um, I can imagine that must have been uh, quite the feat. So what did the person end up doing? That person ended up going back to their home country and having them issue the degree in, I can't remember what language it would have been, or perhaps even they were able to get it in English, but we could, Canada would not accept this Latin piece of paper. Wow. So he, that person had to go back and either get it in the language of the country, which we could then translate for them, or request it in English. And I believe the person was able to obtain it in English. 
Oh, that's good. It seems like there's always a pathway forward if you can just try to open your mind and be as creative as possible. But it's amazing that, um, you know, sometimes the government organizations are just very rigid and and inflexible in, in what they're asking for. So on, yes. that, on that note, then what are the most common documents that you translate for immigration purposes? We translate a lot of identity documents, so a lot of certificates, birth certificates, marriage certificates, ID cards, and a lot of narratives, a lot of letters. Uh, As you would know, when you make a refugee claim, you need to provide evidence to the board to support your claim. And so many people, many claimants go back and have letters written from people who can attest to the situation they've been through, a lot of medical reports, a lot of police reports, if they're able to get those in that in the country that they come from. Those are the types of documents that we receive from immigration lawyers and clients for immigration purposes. Okay, so if I am uh, someone who has a document that needs to be translated and they say, wow, I heard this awesome podcast uh, about this translation company in Calgary, and they reach out to you. What does the process flow? Like, how does it work exactly if someone has never, ever had to get a document translated? What, what does it look like from their perspective? So the very first thing we always require is a scanned copy of the document, which they can email to us. And that just allows us to provide the client with a quote And that way the client can see what they're looking at spending. Um, The way we determine the cost of a translation depends on the type of document. If it's a highly specialized document, if it's a very simple email, that will affect the price. Uh, We also look at the word count and some documents have a lot of formatting involved. So those are the things we consider when we establish a quote. Uh, Once the quote is approved by the client, then we have a very, very quick turnover rate. Uh, we are typically able to provide translations but f- between 24 and 48 hours. So we then send the document off to our translator. Uh, the IRB accepts a lot of notarized translations. So most of our translations, because of the array of languages we deal with, uh, we typically provide notarized translations. We are definitely able to provide certified translations as well, but it's just simpler for us to provide notarized translations. And so then we send the document off to our translator, it gets translated. And then some clients are happy to just have a scanned copy of the notarized translation emailed back to them. We do that. And if they would like the original, we're happy to either deliver it to them, have them pick it up from our office, or we can also meet somewhere and we're happy to or mail it to them if that if that's necessary as well. All right, this is where I'm going to jump in and give my first plug of this wonderful little company here. I had a situation, like many of us do, where clients drug their feet, drug their feet. <laughs> we were facing some very hard deadlines with the, uh, um, with the IAD in this case, and I reached out to, to Giovanni, and they were unbelievable. They, and this was right before Christmas, and yes. they went out of their way to get me the documents, <clears throat> excuse me, in at least a form that I could use them for the purposes of, of our, um, our uh, disclosure that we we're providing to, uh, to the IAD. And uh, boy, I'll tell you, it was amazing how fast things got turned around. And we're going to get into a little bit later on how to choose a translator and some things that you can look for to, to know whether or not this, you know, which which organization is, is someone that you can actually trust and which one you should avoid. And we'll get to that. But I'll tell you that just the responsiveness and the turnaround was was amazing. And um, because this is my podcast, I can say whatever I want. And I also want to emphasize that Giovanni is not paying me anything to say this. I'm the one who begged them to come on the podcast just because of the awesome experience I had with them. All right. Plug number one is complete now. <laughs> Let's... Thank you for that, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. Okay. So um, do, you, do you offer interpretive services like to the IRB and the IAD uh, and, and those, those bodies? I think you had already said that you did, but I just thought I'd, I'd check on that. 
Yes, absolutely. We do. We offer interpreters to the Immigration and Refugee Board, and we also offer interpreters to immigration lawyers, among all the other organizations I mentioned earlier. But the Immigration and Refugee Board has a very strict process for selecting and using interpreters, and they have their own list of accredited interpreters for a number of languages. But lately, over the years, there has been more and more demand for obscure dialects, especially from some of the African and Asian countries. And it's very difficult for them to have a roster of accredited interpreters in those languages. And then they turn to agencies. So we are one of the agencies that provides interpreters to the IRB. And I can just tell you over the last few months, we have had requests for languages like Mandingo or Bangwa or Hassania or Luganda, you know, languages you've probably never heard of, nope, I many sure of which have not. I haven't. <laughs> <laughs> I, I learn a lot about different languages. And um, yeah, so we are able to find interpreters in almost any language that they require. And then Obviously, since they have not gone through the IRB's strict accreditation process, I spend a lot of time personally training these interpreters to make sure that they can provide competent service on the day of the hearing. Wow. So, okay, I'm always digging deeper. So how do you find someone who's speaking this, these rare, rare dialects? <laughs> It helps to have a pretty face, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. There you go. <laughs> but no, really, um, you know, I'm well connected. Thanks to my parents, they started this business and developed a very, very, very well network, a very, very good and far-reaching network of translators and interpreters. And so people innately want to help is what I see. When I say that I have an immigration request, I've just found that people want to help me, especially in these African communities. And so I will call up one of the interpreters I know, and they already know from having worked with me what my expectations are and the kind of qualities I'm looking for in an interpreter. And so then they will often give me someone else's name, and that person might give me someone else's name. And slowly, slowly, I just spend hours on the phone until I finally find someone who is competent in both languages and is willing to be trained and is available to also provide these services. So it's just a matter of having a network. And it makes sense that with your business being around for, you know, 37 years, that you're probably going to have some good networks established. So um, obviously that helps. Absolutely. It definitely helps. And then it just grows from there. People know people who know people and, you know, with the IRB, especially we are, they have a lot of technology that they use at their hearings. And so if we don't have an interpreter in a particular city, they are able to accommodate through video conferencing or telephone interpretation an interpreter in a different city. And it just facilitates things because in some of these communities, a language like Bangwa, you're lucky if you find someone who speaks Bangwa and speaks English fluently enough to be able to provide interpretation services. And the community is already small enough. And you just want to make sure that nobody knows anybody who is involved at the hearing. So yes. the IRB is able to... Conflict. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. So we're able to accommodate, you know, they may have a request in one city and we find an interpreter in a different city. And that just helps to avoid a conflict of interest. That makes a lot of sense. Now, you've <laughs> indicated to me uh, earlier that you're, you know, the geographic region that you kind of focus on is the province of Alberta generally. And sometimes you do, you know, uh, you know, drift into to British Columbia and the courts there or, or other places. But um Many people don't have access to necessarily uh, an awesome company like yours in their province or their location, or even if they're overseas. So can you offer some quick tips on maybe what makes one translator better than another, or that you can look for to get a better sense that maybe this organization that you are connecting with um, can actually provide the service that you need in terms of translation or interpretation? Yes, absolutely. So it's important as a translator, when you're looking for a translator, you would be looking for someone who is a native speaker in the language. So for example, if I am given a document in Spanish, 
I would be looking for someone whose native language is English, if the translation is to be done from Spanish into English, to ensure that the translation is accurate and well-written in English. So a native speaker in the target language is very important. Um, and again, when I use target language, we use source language and target language in translation, source language being the initial language in which the material, the the ID or the whichever document it is, is written in, and the target language is the language into which it's being translated. So this helps a lot also with identifying nuances in the language. It's also important not only for the person to be a native speaker of the target language, but to have a very, very, very strong grasp of the nuances of the source language. And I can give you an example where I was interpreting at a matter where the word being used in Spanish was creatura. And in Spanish, unless you have a, an understanding of the culture, you don't really realize that that word is actually an endearing word for a child. It's very common for parents to refer to their children as my little creature. Whereas in English, <laughs> we don't typically refer to our children as creatures. Yes, it can be my little as animal. Although, although sometimes, Monica, I do refer to my children as little, as little monsters. And so now they're getting older now. I don't use those terms quite as frequently, but there were days for sure where that creatura uh, might be a fitting description. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I have two of my own, so I understand. Um, but in this particular case, it was very, very important to show that the parent was not insulting their child <laughs> because of the charges that were involved in this oh. case. Um, it was very important to show that it was actually a term of endearment. But unless I had that grasp of that cultural nuance, I wouldn't have known that. And I would have just translated it simply as creature. Oh and then for an immigration official or a court official to just see this with no context, oh. it would be taken, it, it could definitely be taken in the wrong way. Oh, and so uh, yeah. wow. yes, go ahead. No, no, I was just gonna say that would have been horrifying. You know, the especially and I, you haven't described the context in which this is <laughs> happening, but I can totally see how <clears throat> that could that that slight little nuance <clears throat> could completely affect the whole outcome of that matter. Yes, absolutely. It's very important. So as a when you're looking for a qualified translator, you want to make sure that the person, you know, I have had people call me and they have actually found certified translators who are not fluent in the source language in speaking. Mm -hmm. And I've actually had people call me and just say, look, I'm looking for someone, you know, wow, you speak Spanish. You, that's a great way to start off my business relationship with you because I've called other interpreters or other translators on the list of certified translators and they can't actually communicate verbally in Spanish. So wow. it's also important for the person to be able to not just read and write the language, but definitely to be able to speak the language as well. That makes a lot of sense. <clears throat> so other, other suggestions that you might have, in addition to obviously being able to translate into their first language. Yes. So uh, another thing that helps in your case is knowledge of the immigration process. It definitely helps if we know why the purpose of this document being translated. It helps us figure out our tone for the translation. So if I know that I am translating a document on extortion, I know that this person, the tone behind that letter is very important to transfer that into English as well, because this is going to demonstrate to the IRB that this person has suffered through a lot of extortion in their country. So a, an understanding of the immigration process and the purpose of these documents that are being submit, submitted helps as well. Now, one thing I had read as I was preparing for this, this interview was the importance of honesty in a translator. Can you elaborate a little bit more on that? Yes, absolutely. You want to make sure that the translator is honest with regards to their competence. So some translators take on any document that is presented to them and they're not actually qualified to translate in that particular language or sorry, in that particular field. So it's important for a translator to recognize their limitations and to communicate those limitations to their clients. And I mean, I can just give you a personal example where I myself, 
love the medical field. I'm an accredited interpreter, a medical interpreter for French, Spanish, and English, and I feel very comfortable translating medical documents. But I've also been asked to interpret at very big civil trials where the topic has been oil and gas, copyright, agriculture, areas with which I'm not very familiar. And so I have always communicated to the lawyers my limitations and the limited knowledge I have in those areas. And they're always very accommodating and they provided me with countless binders and hundreds of pages of information. And as an honest translator and a professional translator, I would put in the hours required on my part to ensure that I attained that level of expertise that I would need to be able to perform as a competent interpreter at that particular trial. Interesting. I'd never really considered that before. So not only is the ability to translate word for word back and forth between uh, between the two um, target languages, but also to have a little bit of an understanding in terms of context and even familiarity with the terminology of a particular industry. I hadn't really thought of that before, but I can imagine, yeah, just because you can translate everyday language doesn't mean you're in any way, shape, or form in a position to be able to translate more technical or industry-specific matters. Yes, absolutely. It you know, translating everyday language is is very different from using vocabulary or having to draw from your memory vocabulary that you do not use on a regular basis and that you are not exposed to on a regular basis. And it's important for an interpreter and a translator to have a context because language is not this isolated entity. Language comes within a context. Everything we say and the way we say it, when we interpret in particular, it's not just the words that we say, it's how we say the words, the emphasis we put on certain words in a sentence that can change the entire meaning or tone of that sentence. And so context is so, so, so important when we are interpreting and translating as well. Now, you've done a great job here of clarifying a little bit from the outsider perspective what is happening on the translation end. But I thought it would also be helpful for our listeners to get some tips and strategies on what they can do to help make the process easier for you. Because obviously, every document that we need to translate, it needs to be, a, well, it needs to be done yesterday. And so... As, as the person who's requesting the service, and obviously as a service provider myself, as an immigration lawyer, if a client gives me exactly what I need in the form I need it, I can turn it around a whole lot faster than if they don't. So can you offer some tips for the listeners on how to make you know, the process go more smoothly? And is there anything that it would be really good for them to understand about the process just to help them more appreciate you know, the value that you guys bring and, and how difficult your job really is. Yes, absolutely. From a translation perspective, it helps if we can have complete copies of the documents from the get-go. Many times we, I, I can see that documents are scanned quite quickly. And so they're often cut off on the top margin or the bottom margin. And so just to facilitate things and to ensure that we can provide you your document yesterday, it helps if you ensure that when you send us the document, it's actually a full document. It's complete from top to bottom, left and right. Um, it helps if it is not just a photo that is taken with your phone and then emailed to us because then that the quality of that document is not necessarily clear for the translator to read. Um, it also helps with many languages, for example, Punjabi or the Chinese languages or Dari or Farsi, if the clients or the lawyers can provide us with the English spellings of the names ahead of time or as they send us the documents, that ensures that there is limited back and forth between us and the clients. And that way we can also ensure that we provide the translation quite quickly. You can imagine that a name like Mohammed uh, there could be different ways of spelling it, whether it's M-O-H or M-U-H, or is it a double M or one M? So these things in an immigration context make a big difference when they are trying to have their identity confirmed and established. And, and you so know those what, are Monica? A yeah, you know what? I'm going to jump in here because that is one of the issues um, 
I get questions on express entry, which is the main way that foreign nationals who want to immigrate directly to Canada, they have to go through this express entry process. And I can't tell you how many times I get people ask me, well, that my passport was the name, the spelling in my passport is a letter off from the the spelling in my birth certificate. And is this going to be a problem? And, you know, it's being translated from Arabic. And, you know, this happens all the time. So that's an amazing tip. And now that I recall, I think you guys had us do that exact same thing with all of the letters of support that we had in support of the uh, disposal sponsorship appeal that I was doing. So that's a great tip. Yes, I think I recall the language was Cambodian. So we would have needed to confirm all of those names with you just to ensure that there are no, uh, I guess, fallouts from misspelling yeah, an important name. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Really. Neat. And from the interpretation side, as if you are using an interpreter service, it's always good for you to remember that the interpreter needs to repeat word for word and idea for idea what is being said. As an interpreter, we cannot summarize what the lawyer is saying or what the client or claimant is saying. And so it's important just to take breaks in your questions or in the claimant or client's answers to give the interpreter the chance to translate or interpret everything that is being said. Uh, That would be something, that would be a tip that would be very useful for interpreters to be able to do their job to the best of their ability. Um, It's also important to realize that the interpreter needs to speak in the first person all the time and lawyers and um, claimants and clients might not always know that. So sometimes I've been put in situations where the lawyer says, oh, can you just ask him, you know, how, how this happened in his yes, country or how long yes. he was in jail for? Can you just ask him? And the interpreter is not there to be talked to. We're really just a piece of furniture. We're just a bridge between the lawyer and the client. So we encourage lawyers and clients to look at each other and to speak to one another. And we just kind of sit off to the side and you shouldn't even notice that we're there. If the interpreter is doing the job correctly, then the interpreter should just be seamless and should just be this bridge. And so the lawyer will ask the question, the interpreter will jump in, interpret the question in the first person. So taking on the role of the lawyer, and then the client will provide an answer to the question, again, looking at the lawyer and the interpreter will just jump in and interpret that response again in the first person. And so it just facilitates communication and there's no, oh, he's saying this and she's saying that. That's not what a professional or certified interpreter should be doing. That's excellent. I think of my experience, um, excuse me, within the last uh, appeal that I did. And uh, that was exactly the case. After a while, the, the, the translator, or I should say the interpreter, it's almost as if they're not there. And so, you, 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 you know, from an immigration perspective, an immigration lawyer perspective, you know, you're, it's, it's like there's just a little bit of a delay, you speaking directly to the person that you're, you're questioning. And so um, that, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Well, this has been yeah. been wonderful, Monica. I, I really, really appreciate the time that you came on the podcast to join us. Um, for those who maybe are, are tuning in a little bit later um, or missed the, the name of, of Monica's company, it is Giovanni Translation and Interpretation located in the lovely city of Calgary, Alberta. Monica, if the, you know, the listeners that have been listening to this podcast say, oh, there's someone that I feel like I can trust to get this document translated properly or you know, someone that needs uh, specific interpreter um, assistance, how can they reach you? What is the best way for them to get in contact with you? The best way to reach us is by email. Our email address is gt, as in Tom, I services at shaw.ca, or they can call me directly on my cell phone at 403-542-7614. And we're very good at responding quickly in a timely manner. And we try to meet your deadlines and work with you and your budget as well as much as we can. Wonderful. Well, this has been extremely, extremely helpful. And I appreciate the time that you took to join us. And uh, I know that I will be definitely reaching out to you in the future as I continue down this this crazy path that uh, that all of us Canadian immigration lawyers go down with all the various languages that we interact with on a daily basis. So thanks so much, Monica. I really appreciate it. 
My pleasure, Mark, and thank you for the opportunity of speaking during your podcast. It's a real honor. Absolutely. Have a wonderful day. Thank you. You too. I knew you guys were going to like that. Monica did a fantastic job. And you know, one of the reasons that I got her on was because they were unbelievably responsive. So if you're in Alberta, I highly, highly recommend that you guys consider if you need any translation done. And remember, she's located in Calgary. I'm in Lethbridge. So distance is irrelevant. I had a a spousal um, appeal at the IED that I was doing and my client had taken forever to get me the documents back. And it was closing in on the day when I had to have it filed. And there just was hardly any time to get it translated. And they went above and beyond to turn these family letters of support around for me um, and, uh, and get them to me in time, not only to meet my deadline for filing, but also just to make sure that I had what I needed to help prep my clients before the actual hearing. And this was right through Christmas. So yeah, talk about responsiveness. They were unbelievable, extremely professional. And, uh, yeah, and obviously they're not a sponsor. Um, they don't pay me anything to do this. I brought them on because their, you know, their work spoke for itself. So yeah, so that was an, just an awesome podcast. I want to also let all of you guys know that I'm going to be in Ottawa. So those of you who are listening uh, and will be attending the Canadian Bar Association National Immigration Conference in Ottawa here in April, it is mid-April, track me down, say hello. I'd love to connect with you when I'm there and love to get your ideas for for other podcasts in the future. But I've actually been trying to get Wes to come join me. But apparently, I'm not big enough to get Wes. Now, David Cohen and his outfit over there, they apparently are big enough to get Wes. But I, I, at this stage, I can't. So if anyone has a contact with the World Education Services or one of these other educational credential assessment agencies, I would love to have them come on and the podcast and just talk about what they do. So I'm hunting them down. I'm looking. If you've got a contact, let me know because I'd love to have them, uh, someone from those organizations join me. All right, folks. Thanks so much for hanging in there. And I want to send all of you guys off with all of my best and wellest wishes as you navigate this crazy world of Canadian immigration law, policy, and practice. Oh, Canada, greatest country in the world. We want to share the richness of your soil. Canadian Immigration Park